Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from our series, An Anchor for the Soul, a verse-by-verse study of the book of Hebrews. Here's Pastor Nick. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Whitefields. We're so glad that you're here with us this morning. We are in a study through the book of Hebrews, a letter to the Hebrews. So if you have your Bibles with you, would you please open them to the New Testament book of the letter to the Hebrews, and we're going to continue our study there. Our series is called An Anchor for the Soul. And this letter to the Hebrews, this is actually, it's one of my favorite books of the Bible. I'm really excited to be studying it with you here on Sunday mornings because what it says is so incredibly powerful. This is so incredibly important for us to understand. And the message of each and every chapter is who Jesus is, what he has done, and how the knowledge of that and understanding of that transforms every aspect of our lives. And so that's what we're going to continue studying this morning as we continue this study. We are in chapter 2, so if you'd please read along with me. We're going to begin reading the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 2, starting in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with honor and glory, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Yet at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. But we do see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering." For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and and the children God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not to angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, that it is so relevant to our lives, that it speaks to us, and this morning we ask that you would open up our ears, open up our minds and our hearts, Lord, that we might receive your word, that we might understand it, and Lord, that we might act upon it. So Lord, we pray that you would speak to us during this time, and let us have ears to hear and hearts to receive, and we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. So throughout human history, there have always been wars. But the way that wars have been fought has changed over time and in different cultures and different places. So nowadays, you know, we fight wars from from far away. We have missiles and rockets and airstrikes and drones. But not that long ago, wars were fought in trenches. Before that, you know, there were these times when armies would just 
walk at each other in lines with muskets and shoot at each other, which sounds terrible, right? But even before that, wars were fought in hand-to-hand combat, just melee warfare. Back in ancient times, one of the ways that battles were fought was through something called representative warfare. So representative warfare, representative combat. The idea behind this was because this melee battle, right, this hand-to-hand combat with sticks and sharp things, it was very brutal, it was violent, and it resulted in so many injuries and deaths on both sides that they came up with an idea to mitigate some of that, and that was that they would do this thing called representative warfare. So what would happen is they would choose a representative from each side. Each side would choose their greatest warrior, And then the other side would choose their warrior and they would call these warriors the champion of the people. And these two champions would go and they would fight each other, mano y mano, man on man, one on one. And whoever was victorious, their side would be credited with the victory and the other side would concede defeat. And we actually have a picture of this practice in the Bible. It's the story which you might be familiar with, is the story of David and Goliath found in 1 Samuel chapter 17. The Israelites were at war with the Philistines and things were not looking good for the Israelites. The Philistines kind of had them on their heels. The Philistine army was stronger, it was bigger, they were better equipped and the Philistines were advancing, they were taking ground. And at one point, the two armies met at this valley called the Valley of Elah. In this valley, so it's a deep valley with mountains on both sides and so the Israelites were encamped on the one side on on these hills and in between them was the valley and the Philistines were encamped on the other side and neither of them was willing to make the first move because whoever makes the first move, whether they go down into the valley or whether they try to run up the hill to attack the other side, they're going to be at a huge disadvantage. They're going to suffer a lot of loss of life. So they're at a standoff. Neither of them wants to make the first move. And this standoff lasted for a long time. It seems that it lasted for over a month with these two armies camped out, you know, staring at each other across this valley. And so in order to resolve this conflict, the Philistine army suggested that they resort to this practice of representative warfare. We actually see that right there in 1 Samuel, that the Philistines sent out their champion. It even calls him that. They sent out their champion, a man named Goliath of Gath. And so this champion, Goliath, he goes out there and he tells the Israelites to send down their champion, right? And that's what it says there in verses 8 and 9. Goliath says to them, choose a man for yourselves. Let him come down to me. And if he's able to fight and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail and kill him, then you shall be our servants and you shall serve us. But the Israelites had a problem. The problem was they didn't have a champion. They didn't have somebody who could fight for them and represent them and fight on their side. There was no one who stood a chance against a warrior like Goliath, this great massive man, this this one who it seemed was invincible. His size, his skill, his armor and his weapons, it was like we don't even stand a chance. It was a hopeless situation. They have no one to go on their behalf and fight this battle. And it wasn't until a young shepherd boy who for his entire life had been overlooked by everybody. He showed up to to deliver lunch, actually. That's how it happened. This boy, his name was David. And not only was he willing to fight Goliath, but the interesting thing about David is that even though he had been overlooked his entire life and even in this battle, he was the one who was uniquely skilled 
to actually win this battle. You see, because from childhood, he had learned how to use a sling, and he had gotten pretty good at it because he had been working as a shepherd. He had to fight off bears and lions, and he'd actually gotten really good at using this sling. You see, Goliath had come with a spear, with a sword, but David showed up with a sling, and nobody realized it at first, but that was essentially kind of like showing up to a knife fight with a gun. And so here's Goliath, and he sees David coming, no armor, it was just some rocks in his hand and this piece, this strap of leather, and he scoffs at him, and he says, what kind of champion are you? You're the very picture of weakness and vulnerability and humility, and he didn't take him seriously. In fact, nobody took him seriously. Everyone still was overlooking him. He didn't look like any champion that they had ever seen before. From all outward appearances, Goliath exuded power and might and force, and David was just the opposite, humility, weakness, vulnerability. But it didn't take very long before people realized that it was actually David who had the advantage because David had showed up to a knife fight with a gun, and he literally shot Goliath in the head and killed him. And see, because of how representative warfare worked, David's victory over Goliath was the victory of all the people over All those other people, it was his side over the other side. See, the thing though is that none of those people in the Israelite army, other than David, none of them even lifted a finger. Not a single one of them. None of them had risked their lives. David had done everything, he had done it all, and yet they got to share in the victory. And years later, there was another man. He was known as the son of David. He was a descendant of that boy who had become the champion of the people who had later become their king. And he also came in a way that from all outward appearances seemed confusing. It seemed like weakness and vulnerability. It seemed like humility. And you wonder, well, what kind of champion is this? This isn't the kind of champion that we would have ever imagined. And yet he came and he defeated an even greater enemy, an enemy which we were absolutely helpless to fight against. And because of his victory, because he was our champion, we get to be victorious. We get to be free. His name was Jesus, and he is our champion. That's the title of today's message, by the way. Jesus, our champion. The book of Hebrews was written to Christians who were discouraged. They were struggling with discouragement. Maybe there's some of you who can relate to that yourselves. Maybe some of you struggle with discouragement sometimes. Maybe you struggle with fear. That's what these people were dealing with. They were asking a question which many of us asked even this day, which is, if God loves me so much, then why is there so much difficulty in my life? If God cares so much about me, then why are things so hard? Why is my life full of troubles if God cares about me? And the answer that this question gives in each and every chapter chapter is that the cure for discouragement, the cure for fear, the only true cure is to look to Jesus, is to fix your eyes upon him and focus in on who he is and really let it sink in your mind and get down to your heart what he has done and what that means for you because it's only in him that you will find hope which will be an anchor for your soul, the cure for fear and worry and anxiety and discouragement. Are you looking for a resource to help you answer some of the most difficult questions about God in the Bible? Then we've got good news for you. Pastor Nick has written a book called The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Embracing Christianity. 
In this book, Pastor Nick deals directly with some of the biggest questions people struggle with, such as how a loving God can allow innocent people to suffer, whether God condoned genocide in the Old Testament, or whether the Bible encourages the suppression of women and minorities. Does the Bible really say that some kinds of love are wrong? And is there any actual proof that God exists or that the Bible is trustworthy? Pastor Nick addresses these topics and more in this book, which is a great resource for anyone who wrestles with doubts or has concerns about these topics. And it is a great resource for those who want to help others who have questions about these topics. So to purchase this book, search for The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Christianity, wherever books are sold, or visit nickkady.org. To celebrate the release of this book, we are offering a free copy of the book as our gift to any of our listeners who make a donation of any amount to support Be Set Free Radio at BeSetFreeRadio.com. And now, back to today's message. Here in chapter 2, the writer tells us that Jesus is our champion. He is the one who has gone in our place and fought the great battle for us. But there are several aspects of this idea of Jesus being our champion, which the writer shows us here in chapter 2. So let's look at them. First of all, Jesus is our king who has come to us. Secondly, he is our brother who is proud of us. And thirdly, he is our priest who helps us. So our king who's come to us, our brother who is proud of us, and our priest who helps us. Let's look at the first of those. Jesus is our king who has come to us. Now remember in the scope of this book, one of the benefits of studying the way that we do where we go through verse by verse and chapter by chapter is that we get the whole picture of the book rather than just grabbing pieces out of it. So we looked at chapter one over the last two weeks, and the theme of chapter one was that Jesus... Is, is like no one else. There's no one you can compare him to. You see, Jesus is not just another religious figure. He's not just another great thinker who lived at one time and then died. Jesus is actually, we're told there in the first chapter of Hebrews, he's actually God. And therefore, you can't put him on the shelf with other historical figures. You can't put him on the same category as other religious leaders. Jesus is actually God Most High. He holds the universe together, it says, by the power of his word. He created all things. There is no one who compares to him. There is none who is greater than him because he, Jesus, is God Most High. And then now in chapter 2, though, having established that idea that Jesus is God Most High, now the author changes gears and he says, But wait, there's actually more. Not only is Jesus God most high, but he is not the kind of God, you know, like the Greek or Roman gods or these other gods who are detached way up there, somewhere far away. They they don't care. They're not involved. Not at all. We don't have an afar off God. No, we have a God who has heard our cries and he has come down to us. He became one of us. And not just at risk to his life, but at the cost of his life. And that's what this chapter really is about. It's about Jesus, how God became man, took on human flesh, and what Jesus accomplished in his humanity. So in verses 5 to 15, the writer shows us what Jesus has done for us as our champion, as our king who has come to us. And there are three stages to this, which which we're going to look at quickly. Three stages kind of to this argument that the writer builds. The first is this. He says, here's what we were made to be. Then he says, but here's what's gone wrong. And he says, okay, but here's what God has done about it. So what we were made to be, what has gone wrong, and what God has done about it. To answer the question of who we were made to be, the writer takes us to Psalm 8. That's what we have there, starting in verse 6 to 8. That's a quotation 
from Psalm 8. And in Psalm 8, the psalmist says, this is what human beings were created for. This was the vision with God in his creation of the world. It says that he made them a little lower than the angels, but he crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under our feet. What that means is that when God created the world, he didn't entrust it to the care of angels. He entrusted it to our care. He gave us a a sacred trust and a sacred responsibility to subdue the earth, to administer and manage this planet that he's given us, to cultivate it, to nourish it, to organize it, to establish societies where there's justice and peace and prosperity and unity and safety. See, God made us, it says, for glory and honor and to have dominion over the world. But then it says, but that's not the way it is. In other words, this is what God called us to do, but but we blew it. You see, verse eight is kind of the understatement of the year, right? It says, at present, we do not see all things in subjection to him. At present, this is how it's supposed to be, but we don't see that things are the way that they're supposed to be. At present, we do not see things in subjection to him. You see, we look out at the world and we don't see a world that is orderly. We don't see a world that is nicely kept. We see a world that is out of control. We see a world that is in chaos. We see a world that's breaking down. Hurricanes and floods. We see violence and wars. We see accidents and tragedies. There's poverty and suffering. And we look at these things, and even though that's the way it is, we innately feel that, okay, maybe that's how it is, but that's not the way it should be. It's not right. It's not the way it's supposed to be. You see, the biggest problem, even even beyond all of those other things, our biggest problem and the world's biggest problem, it tells us in verse 14 and 15, is death and the fear of death. So what went wrong? Let's look at that before we move on. The answer is found all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. See, we were given this sacred trust. God created the world. He entrusted it to us, called us to subdue it and manage it and administer it, cultivate it, create societies of peace and justice. And... Yet we blew it. And how did we blow it? Well, we rebelled against God. That's where it began. We wanted to be our own lords and masters, but the irony is we couldn't even master ourselves. And so in in seeking to, rather than honor God and submit to him as our lord and master, we sought to be our own lords and master and we, we brought a curse upon ourselves, the curse of sin, the result of which is death. You see, and it's not just us who are affected by this curse. The Bible tells us that all of creation groans under the curse, longing for its day of redemption. In other words, nothing in this world is the way it should be. Nothing is how it ought to be. Nothing is the way that it was meant to be. Nature is broken. And I want to be clear and say this. There is very much good in this world, but the good that is in this world is tainted. It's imperfect. But see, the ultimate curse of sin is death. You know, it's really interesting how when you talk about death, People really don't like to talk about it. Even, even in church, like people are like, ah, it's a, it's a bit, bit of a downer here, huh? But it's interesting that we don't like to talk about death. But you see, the thing about death is that if you're alive, I mean, it's, it's kind of the one thing that we all have in common, isn't it? We cringe whenever we hear about someone passing away. Even if we didn't know that person personally, we don't like to talk about it. We don't like to think about it. And yet it's such a fundamental part of our existence here on earth. From the day a child is born, there's all this joy and light and happiness, and yet there's this dark cloud looming on the horizon, this guarantee that one day death will come. Every one of us will die, and it's not a question of if we will die, it's a question of when. And we know that, and yet we always seem surprised by it. 
We always seem like it's a surprise, and yet it, it shouldn't really be, but yet it always is. You know, as a pastor, I've officiated a lot of funerals, and I'll tell you this, whenever someone dies, even if they were very sick or, or very old, everybody seems just so shocked by it. Like, I can't believe this actually happened. And yet, in a way, death is the one thing we shouldn't be surprised by, and yet we are, because we cannot shake, no matter how hard we try, we cannot shake this nagging feeling that there's something fundamentally wrong with it. There's something fundamentally unnatural about it. It's foreign. It's a thief. It's an intruder, that it's not right, that it's not fair, that it shouldn't be this way. And the reason we feel that way, the Bible would tell us, the Bible would tell us that's an absolutely correct feeling. Because we weren't made for that. We weren't made for death. We were made for glory and honor and light and life. But instead, we experience frustration and shame and ultimately death. And it says there in verse 15 that we live all of our lives in bondage to the fear of death. We live in bondage to the fear of death. If that's not a perfect description for our society, I don't know what is. Our society lives and exists in bondage to the fear of death. It's interesting that all major writers and thinkers and philosophers have addressed this topic. And and the topic is really this, that they've all come to this conclusion that we as human beings, we know that death is coming, and yet we are so afraid, so terribly afraid of death that we do everything we can not to think about it. We keep ourselves busy. We pretend like it's never going to happen. We we try not to think about it. We suppress those thoughts and we try to live our lives as if it's not ever going to happen. But here's the thing though, and, and here's the reason why we do that. Because if we would really think about it, if we'd really take a minute and stop from all our busyness and all our work that keeps us busy so that we don't have to think about it, and we'd take a step back and we'd really look at things and we'd say, you know what, if this life is all there is, and there's nothing after this, and death is the end, then that means that everything that we are doing is completely meaningless. Everything that you stress out over, everything that you do throughout your week and toil over and run here and there, if this life is all there is and there's nothing after this, it's just a gigantic waste of time. It's it's almost like as if life is a stationary bicycle. And each generation climbs up on that stationary bicycle and they get on and they pedal and they pedal as hard as they can and they sweat and they work and they toil and they keep themselves busy and they get super stressed and they they work and work and work until they get tired and they fall off and they die. And then the next generation gets on and they pedal and pedal and pedal and pedal and they sweat and toil and toil and yet we're never getting anywhere because it's a stationary bicycle but yet we're doing all this toiling and all this pedaling and the next generation gets on and so on and so on ad infinitum. It's a stationary bike. All this effort, all this energy we're exerting, it really means nothing and we're not actually getting anywhere if this life is all there is. And if you really take a moment to look at it like this, you would have to admit that everything, even our entire lives, is completely pointless. It's completely meaningless. And yet no one wants to do that. We're so desperately afraid of admitting this fact that if this life is all there is and then death is the end, that nothing matters because we desperately want to believe that what we do makes a difference and has a purpose and yet there's this nagging feeling that we cannot shake that if we stop for a minute and take a step back and really look at it, we have to admit that everything we do, everything we work for, if death is the end and death is coming for all of us, that it's all absolutely pointless. That's what the writer writer of Ecclesiastes, that was his exact point. I look at life I take a step back and I realize all this stuff I'm doing is just chasing after the wind. And yet we're so terrified of admitting that. 
And so we just keep ourselves busy so we won't have to think about it. And if anybody says, well, wait a second, we say, no, no, I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to talk about that. We don't want to think about it. The entire human race is in bondage to the fear of death. And that's why we work so hard. That's why we try so hard. That's why we do so much so that we won't have to think about it. So that's the bad news. But let me tell you what God has done about it. Here's the good news. We look out at the world, we see that things are not the way they should be. We see that death is an inevitability. And then we look at ourselves and we see we're not even what we should be. And here's the hope that we have. It says in verse 9, we look and we see the world, we see that it's not what it should be. But verse 9, but we see Jesus. But we see him. We look at this world and we see so many things. We look at ourselves, we see that we're not even what we should be, but we see him. We see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. See what the writer's doing. He's going back to that psalm that we read earlier and now he's reading it through Jesus. You see, he's putting Jesus in that place. He's saying, Jesus, though he is God most high, Yet he was made a little lower than the angels. He became one of us. He added humanity to his deity. He never ceased to be God. But Jesus was fully human and fully God at the same time. He added humanity to his deity. See, the message of the gospel is that God is not just a distant, far-off, emotionally detached God. Rather, he is a God who has heard our cries. He has seen our hopeless plight. And he has come down to us in order to save us. And verse 14 says that because we are flesh and blood human beings, that God became a flesh and blood human being. This is what we call, in theological words, we call this the incarnation, that God became a man. Why? It tells us there, so that he, by his own death, could destroy the power of death. You've been listening to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We have three in-person services on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. And our 9.30 and 11 services are live streamed on our website for those who would like to worship with us online. We are located just east of County Line Road and Highway 119 at 2950 Colorful Avenue in Longmont. For more information or to hear other messages from Pastor Nick, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. Be Set Free is a listener-supported program. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support this ministry, you can send a donation via check to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or donate online at besetfreeradio.com.